Hello, and welcome to Wealth Vision 2020, where we discuss markets, economies, and money to help you understand what is happening, why it's happening, and most importantly, what to do about it. I'm Craig Pluta. Today's episode is called Economic Jigsaw Puzzle, where we discuss the intricacies in U.S. and E.U. sanctions, which are about to institute a cap on the price of Russian oil. China's failed zero-COVID policy and how they are likely to maneuver out of it amid the riots and discontent spreading among their populace. And the first sign that the Federal Reserve is looking to moderate their rate hikes, giving a bit of clarity while traveling down this foggy road, and the market's reaction to that. Stay tuned as we discuss that and more. As we wrap up 2022 a year that has given us much more turbulence in the markets than we've seen in some time, and a geopolitical landscape that has sometimes felt like a powder keg, I think it would be as good a time as ever to discuss some of the variables that are currently causing uncertainty in the markets. The first being the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but more more specifically, how that is affecting the oil markets and what the EU is planning to do to prevent the funding of the Russian war effort through the purchase of of Russian oil. From there, I would love to talk about Russia's neighbor, China, and how protests over the zero-COVID policy could shape not only their future, but also the future of the world economy. And then we can finish with everyone's favorite topic, rate hikes. How do we see the Fed moving going forward? Have some of the comments by the Fed governors signaled a slower pace of rate hikes? Well, I'm very excited to discuss all of these topics, so let's jump right in by discussing the EU's proposed price cap on Russian oil. What is the proposed price cap and how would this affect Russia's pocketbook and the oil markets as a whole? Yeah, when you when you look at the Ukraine situation and you look at oil, that's one of the biggest uh, pieces that we're going to be talking about because there is a set of sanctions and now we're on the sixth set. So on the sixth set of sanctions, it's very interesting. It, it, it was done quite some time ago and it was all about having a 100% entire embargo on any Russian oil coming into Europe. And now we've gone back and we've looked at that. And this is a lot of this is the leadership of Janet Yellen, who's our treasury secretary, who started to look at this and found out that we don't like Russia making money on their oil. But in the real world, we like to have the Russian oil. And this is the politics of oil. You know, it puts together strange bedfellows. So if you were to completely ban all Russian oil from going into Europe, then what's going to end up happening is you've got a supply shock that's going to cause the price of oil to go up. Now, nobody's more concerned about that than the Biden administration, who has already seen people be very unhappy with the rising gas prices. And so now what's being proposed is, well, maybe we can solve, you know, kill two birds with one stone, so to speak. And so what the talk is, is why don't we let Russia sell their oil, but we want to cap what they can get for the price of a barrel of oil. And and so that one will make everybody kind of cock their head a little bit and go, wait, what? What's going on here? So, so here's how they want to lay it out. The talk is that if you're going to let Russia sell oil, 
you should let them sell it for somewhere between $60 and $70 a barrel. And the reason for that is if you look at Russia, it is worth knowing that Russia is considered the least efficient oil producer on the planet, okay? So so even though they are a big oil producer, and when I say a big oil producer, I mean that currently they are number two. And so you might be sort of surprised that they wouldn't be very efficient at what they do, but they're not. The estimate is that it costs Russia somewhere between $30 and $40 per barrel to get it out of the ground. <clears throat> now, just to give you an, an idea of other people, it costs Saudi Arabia somewhere between $15 per barrel to get it out of the ground. So, so between $30 and $40 in Russia. Is this just because they haven't been doing this as long or they have so much that they don't even care that they're not efficient? No, it isn't that they don't care. I, th I think that they would like to care. It's, it's just, it's always been a criticism of Russia that they just don't run anything efficiently, that, that they just have a shoddy system. Now, keep in mind that when you look at all of the Arab oil countries and the efficiency that they have, it is worth noting that you have to go back in time. The way they got efficient is J. Paul Getty went over and, and was a big oil producer in Saudi Arabia and helped them have the efficiencies of how to do things. So American companies are very, very well known for being super efficient at getting things done. I mean, you can even go into the fracking industry, you know, back, you know, a decade or two ago where they would say fracking, you know, their break even was around $70 a barrel. And then all of a sudden you had a couple of years later fracking 2.0 where people would say, well, it's more like $50 a barrel. And then they'd get fracking 3.0 and they're like, yeah, it's like 30 or $40 a barrel. <laughs> so, so we just really keep making different equipment and everything. Russia's just not known for that. And and yes, I guess if you're pumping a lot of oil and it's not your priority, you can get away with it as long as oil prices are high. Um, but that that's not really the case here. So or it is currently the case, but it it may not be the case in the future. Um, because don't forget, even after we saw $150 barrel of oil Back before the big financial crisis of 2008, we then soon saw oil trading in the 20 and $30 a barrel, you know, and so that becomes devastating if you're not efficient. So anyway, so, so the thought is that you want to allow Russia to be able to get 60 to $70 a barrel. Now, the reason why we say that is because this at our administration and the EU is looking at it and saying, if you lower that number, and by the way, there are people who want it lower. Lithuania and, and Estonia are two people who say they don't want it that high. They want Poland it as well. Yep. And they, they want it in that 50, 50, you know, 45. At that point, there wouldn't be a reason to pump the oil. Yeah, I've actually seen reports that Poland is pushing for a $30 price cap on the Russian oil. And even President Zelensky said that's just way too low. Yeah. And, and at that point, there wouldn't be a reason why you would pump oil and lose money on every barrel, in which case then the fear is it would come off the entire global market. If it comes off the global market, then of course that pressures oil higher. And so this becomes sort of this delicate balancing act that they're doing. Now, Russia, of course, comes out and they say, 
well, we won't sell oil to anybody who enforces that cap, in which case that's sort of a bluff. And, and the expectation is they don't really have any other source of revenue to keep the government going. Forget the war. I mean, yes, it's, it's financing the war. What's financing more than the war? It's financing the entire government. Remember that these are state-owned enterprises. And so, and so the government, oil and gas, represents approximately 50% of Russia's budget. Because of that, it, it just isn't really an option to say we're not going to pump the oil. The second reason why that becomes tough is that if you don't pump oil for a long period of time, you generally need to cap those oil wells because there's all sorts of problems that happen if they're not going to be active. Once you cap an oil well, two things happen. Number one, it's very expensive to cap an oil well. Number two, it's very difficult to reopen a capped oil well. Literally, the way they cap an oil well is they pour tons of cement down the pipe. Okay. So it's not just like you're gonna you're you're gonna put a little you know lid Tupperware on lid on the top of the the thing and say okay we're just gonna leave this here, and I I don't know all the particulars of exactly why that needs to be done, but it seems to be a consensus that you cannot just stop pumping oil and saying, you know what, we're just going to wait for two years and and then pump it later on. That's very interesting. I think a lot of people would think it's just an on-off switch with those. Yeah, like a little spigot, you yeah. know, just like, uh, you know, turning the water on and off. And and apparently it, it just is not that easy and, and you cannot just leave a well just being um, inactive. So, so we have a little bit of a standoff, and this is all coming to a head. So, so this next weekend, which um, you know, once the podcast releases, will have just happened. Um, you've got two things happening. You've got the the EU making the decision as to what they want to set that cap to be, and you also have an OPEC meeting. That's going to be happening. Now, the OPEC meeting recently was just changed to be a virtual meeting. And and I don't know if you can read a lot into that. There are people who are OPEC followers who say once it became a, a, a virtual meeting and they're not going to meet in person, it means there's not going to be much change in what they're doing. I also find it interesting that their meeting is um, the day before the December 5th. Uh, deadline for the EU to make their price cap decision. Yeah, I think that most people are are coming to the conclusion that they know what the EU is going to do. They just don't know what the number is that's mm-hmm. going to be used. But yeah, you would think that OPEC would want to wait, you know, a day or two after that and then respond to it. Um, but you're right; they're going to have their meeting on uh, on Sunday, and so and so all of this is coming together now. There are people who would say, well, why can't Russia just continue to sell their oil anyway above that cap? And this is where it becomes very interesting because everybody knows that OPEC is a cartel. And a cartel just means nothing more than it's a bunch of people getting together and they just price fix and they just make the decision that we're all going to agree to do something and that in, in OPEC's uh, world that is cutting production or, or increasing production and therefore supply and demand gets affected by it and that affects the price. And so everybody's really used to that kind of a cartel. But we also have now a new way of thinking and we have a new cartel. 
And that cartel is the supplier cartel, so supplier of all of the services. And in fact, here's what becomes really interesting. When you ship by sea, and this is all going to be by sea because you can't stop Russia from shipping by land. So if they are have a land neighbor and, and China is one of their land neighbors, they can certainly ship some of that oil just across the land. Nothing's going to stop them. They can ask for any price that they want. If it's by sea, here's where the leverage is that the Eurozone has. The leverage is that there are just so many shipping containers, ships, that can carry the oil. And half of all of Russian oil is on Greek ships. And really? Greece is from the Eurozone. The other interesting thing is all ships have to be insured. Now, 90% of all of the insurance comes out of London. So the reason why that's important is ports will not allow a ship to dock in their port if it is not insured. It's because you might just think, well, why don't they just put it on the ships and not insure it? And the answer is because they can't dock anywhere. In fact, some of the things are so stringent that the Suez Canal will not allow any uninsured ship to pass through the Suez Canal. So that's how important insurance is in this whole industry. So so with 90% of the insurance coming from, from Britain and them being on board, here's what we're saying. If there is a ship and it is not – and the oil was not under the price cap, it cannot be insured. However, if it is bought, the oil is bought at the price cap, then London will insure the shipment. So this is kind of how how they intend to turn the screws to Russia and basically say, well, if you want it to go by sea, you don't have a choice but to Play but to pay rules. that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, Russia's pushback is we just won't send anything by sea. And the answer there is if they take that, it's going to put so much pressure that the deals they will need to make with people like China and India – so China and India are the two biggest users of Russian oil. They're, it's already estimated that China and India are getting about a 30 percent break on the price of oil by agreeing to buy Russian oil. Wow. If we now lower and have a cap, it puts more pressure on, on Russia – to have a deeper discount. So here's what ends up happening. Regardless of whether this embargo works or doesn't work or the price cap works or doesn't work, it works. Because either you get a cap and Russia makes less money or they say, forget everybody, we don't care and we're not going to sell to people, but they need to sell their oil. So they're going to have to discount their oil more and they make less money. So in both scenarios, although this whole thing started out with people thinking, I don't think this can work. There's got to be workarounds. And there will be some cheating. For sure, mm -hmm. there will be some cheating in the thing. But but when you start to to look at all the pieces of the puzzle, it actually says Russia will probably make less money on their oil. And that is the intent 
of the whole thing. So we're going to see how that plays out. It's going to be very tricky. And, and I think it's particularly getting tricky in the fact that it's really precipitated by the Ukraine war, mm -hmm. which is becoming even more unpopular. Xi Jinping out of China, the supporter of Russia at this moment, is finding more and more pressure as it becomes more and more unpopular. And the question is, really, how many more years does somebody want to actually have this whole thing drag on? So, so there's pressure from all different spots um, coming at Russia. Yeah, they're really stuck between a rock and a hard place. Yeah. Well, you're on the topic of unpopular things. I think it's time we touch on China's zero COVID policy. Um, protests have been bubbling into the streets. And from everything I've read, protests in China are not an unusual occurrence. Um, but the fact that these are all around the country and not isolated incidents is quite interesting. Yeah, this is really becoming um, a head scratcher. And so we've talked about this before. Um, you know, Xi Jinping, you know, did get his third term. That was certainly important. And and a lot of these lockdowns, so so the peak of lockdowns seemed to have been approximately in September, uh, September in that September-October period, uh, prior to their, their national congress and him getting his third term. And that makes sense if you look at it on a practical basis. Um, the last thing you want if you have zero COVID policy is to um, have a lot of outbreaks happening right before the party congress um, and, and casting any doubt on the zero COVID policy. But the zero COVID policy is not working. And, and I think that when you talk to people across the globe, you don't just have to talk to U.S. people that have a U.S. point of view. But if you talk to anybody in the World Health Organization, really any country on the planet, they all are scratching their heads saying – there, there, there isn't a way to make this work. This, this is being likened to having a zero cold policy, right? <laughs> it's just not going to happen. They're yeah. going to exist. They are out there. Um, and so zero COVID started out a lot like it was in this country. So, so we talk about zero COVID policy as being ridiculous, but we did a zero COVID policy in essence, um, a form of it. And basically, our take on that was, if you're going to make a vaccine, then why don't we have people shelter in place until a vaccine can be readily available? And once it's available, then the protections you're going to get are at least going to be enough to not overwhelm hospital systems. Mm -hmm. and, and in China, that's what they were really after. So they basically said, listen, um, if, if we just let it run rampant, um, we certainly aren't going to be able to protect everybody. Keep this in mind. You know, as we know with, with any disease, the elderly are more affected than young people. And keep this in mind. When you go to an Asian culture, and this is certainly very true with China, they do revere the elderly people. Mm -hmm. And so and so when you look at it from their lens, and I always encourage people to at least try to understand what they were trying to do, if you look at it from their lens, they're basically saying, um, we're making a vaccine. They're terrible at it. You know, we found <laughs> that out just as we found out um, that Russia is really, really bad at war. 
Yeah, I think you gave me a stat the other day about the efficacy of their vaccines. What was that again? Yeah, it's, it, the efficacy is right around 45%. Um, yeah, and, and, and when you're looking at, you know, Pfizer and Moderna, you know, being in the 90s, I mean, it's it's awful. And, and you would just think that they could just reverse engineer, um, you know, I mean, it's not legal to do that, but that's never stopped them before. Um, you know, you would think that they would be on top of that. So, Or that maybe they would just buy from uh, Moderna. Yeah, yeah. There Johnson you get into Johnson. that whole national pride kind of thing of whether China's going to turn to the United States for, for their vaccine or not. But it certainly has been out there as an offer that that they'd be happy to supply it. Mm-hmm. So, so they haven't done that. And so they're not in a good position. So it started out as as well, we don't wouldn't want to overwhelm a hospital system. Then it's morphed into something very different. It's morphed into um, we believe that we can just stand on the train tracks and put our hand out and we will stop this thing called COVID. And it's become very, very clear that that's just not going to happen. It's just not even probably possible to happen. And if you were to do that, you would have to be resigned to have these rolling shutdowns for decades long. And and in the end, all that would have happened is that the population would have been exposed to it on a very slow basis. So I don't know if, if you know, Xi Jinping's going to change his mind. I've said in the past, I do think he will. Um, I, I have always thought that once he gets into his third term, because this was his baby, um, that, that he would realize that this isn't working and now he's got a lot of pressure and the pressure's from the people. And when you start to have dissent, where you start to have riots, it doesn't matter if you're a totalitarian regime or not. Yes, it's easier to put down riots if you're a totalitarian regime, no doubt about that. However, we live in a world where optics matter. And it doesn't look good. And they know it doesn't look good. It's just like when the spotlight was on them for all of the Hong Kong riots, which wasn't that long ago. And so and so they have to address it, but they have to try to address it in a way that doesn't make them look like they're caving into a bunch of student protesters. And that's always a difficult, you know, tightrope to walk. I'm sure. But I do think that that's likely to end up happening. Um, just because people are so upset. I mean, the last number I saw was there were 60 million Chinese people that are being affected by this. And and I've heard um, estimates that it's much, much higher than that. Mm-hmm. And, and when you consider a country like ours being roughly 300 million people, you're like, wow, that's a lot of people. Yeah, that is an unbelievably large amount of people that are being affected by this. And um and recently, aside from just the the pains of being locked down and not being allowed to leave their homes, um, people are seeing deaths related to the the zero COVID policy that aren't actually COVID deaths. Um, one of the biggest protests was sparked um, by actually an apartment fire where 10 people died. And many people in China believe that rescue workers were not able to get to the scene of the fire because of zero COVID policy. Um, and there's been similar issues uh, similar to this one as well. Um, and people are just kind of getting fed up at this point. Yeah. And and when you look at those, and if you look at China's history, there there's always something that seems to spark those. 
One of the things that's interesting, and we're, we're, we're kind of waiting to see whether this has any effect on those protests, is the fact that China has had a history as former leaders or prominent people have passed away. It, it causes a lot of Chinese, it seems, to reflect on how China was and where China is going, and that can add to protest. Good example, everybody knows about Tiananmen Square. I mean, that that is a pretty common one that was a bunch of student protests. What's interesting about that, though, is there was a reformer. His name was Hu Yubang. And in 1989, he died. And he was a, a reformer that was purged out of the system. When he died, it started to have people reflect on things. And that reflection and small riots that became bigger riots that became bigger riots became Tiananmen Square. And so that's what that was all about. Now, the reason that I bring that up, because hundreds or thousands of people died in that protest, the reason that I bring that up is because we've now just had another prominent death. And that prominent death was um, Jean Zemin. And, And he is the guy who, if you go back into the 80s, he was the guy who was put in charge after Tiananmen Square to be able to take China to the next level. So he is the reason why they are in the World Trade Organization. He is the one who opened up and and made more reforms and relaxed things. He relaxed um, the the press. People in the press were, weren't afraid of saying anything bad. I, I, re, I read one quote where people said, um, you don't have to be afraid of criticizing the government. Just don't criticize uh, Jean Zemin personally, <laughs> and you'll be fine. Um, and so, and so he was well revered. Well, he was ninety six years old. He just died. He had leukemia. And so, what's ha- what people are concerned about, and we'll see whether this has any effect, is that when these things happen, very often Chinese people will look. And all of the reforms and the relaxed policies and and becoming more tolerant to entrepreneurialism and things like that, and then look at Xi Jinping, and what they're noticing is that Xi Jinping is bringing back much more of a consolidated power, a bit more um, autocratic, um, very much – um, in favor of more censorship. Mm-hmm. And so and so some of these protests have the potential of looking back and asking the question, is this where we want to be? Not not unlike, you know, what had happened in Tiananmen Square, where, you know, a reformer who was purged and then dies, it makes you think, well, wait a minute, you know, what do we think about where we're going? So I think that's going to be very interesting. And so I, I would not be surprised if you had a bit of reform for all of this. And that makes sense. I know at the protest currently, you're seeing a lot of young people just holding blank white pieces of paper. Um, and they say that symbolizes just the opportunity to have free speech and free press. So, so in China, now that we've got um, Xi Jinping having gotten his third term, he has now appointed somebody that was very close for, to him, which is Li Shuli, and he has been confirmed as the Communist Party's propaganda chief. 
And they use that term. And they use the term <laughs> the propaganda chief, which isn't that kind of amazing? Wild. Like, like you would you would be pretty surprised that they would call it that. But one of the things that is being talked about now, this isn't confirmed. This is just talk of what people think is going on. But there is talk that Xi Jinping understands that zero COVID policy has to be unwound in some way, shape, or form. Although his talk is, we really have done a great job. We have saved something in the order of 6 million Chinese lives by having this. The talk is that the propaganda chief is going to be in charge of a new narrative. And the new narrative is, how do we get out of this? Mm -hmm. And the narrative is that the B- F8 variant, which is the new variant that they're dealing with China, is more similar to the flu than it is anything else. Okay. And, and if that becomes the narrative, then the narrative will be, therefore, our zero COVID policy has in fact won. We were smart now that the virus is now down to something that's more like a flu, we don't have to have these tough restrictions and we can ease up on it and and look at all the good work that we did. And that, in essence, is what propaganda is all about. I mean, yeah. when you have a narrative um, that kind of supports why you're going to unwind something, um, you know, more power to them. If that's what they need to do to be able to get off of that, then that's probably going to be the smart thing to do. But don't be surprised if you're hearing within this next year the talk that the variants are getting less virulent, less virulent, less virulent. They're not that big of a problem now and then unwind it. Let's hope so because I also did hear they said even if they do unwind the zero COVID policy, it's going to take at least a year to prepare the healthcare system for potential infections. I mean, I would have to assume get herd immunity up and maybe efficacy rates on your vaccines better. Yeah, and and that may be part of it. You know, um, you know where their vaccine is, whether they use any outside vaccines, if they reverse engineer an RNA vaccine. Um, but yeah, that's. You know, that's probably going to be part of the whole equation as well. So we'll see where that goes. Now, why does anybody care about that? You know, the, the real reason is that whether we like it or not, China is such a large part of the entire supply chain that it's a big deal. So when you start shutting down, especially um, more of the coastal region of China, which is where most of the commerce is done and where all the shipping ports are, when you shut those down, it has a severe impact on on goods flowing in and out mm -hmm. of China to the rest of the world. And, and whether people like it or not, there are two countries that matter when it comes to this. If the United States has a deep recessionary period, the rest of the world is going to feel it. If China has no GDP, the rest of the world is going to feel it. So being the number one and number two economy um, has a really big impact on all of this. And so everybody's rooting for China to try to figure out how to get their way, you know, get their way past this zero COVID policy so that we can get back to normal. And I suspect that that many Chinese people would like to get back to normal. I'm sure. 
Now, here's something that is being talked about um, just speculatively out there. And it's and it's interesting because Xi Jinping is becoming much more authoritarian and silver civil liberties are are being taken away little by little. There is a question as to whether a lot of Chinese people who come to the United States and become educated in the United States are going to find it to be attractive to remain in the United States instead of returning back to China. And I bring that up because very often what happens in the world is many people come over here and many brilliant people that are foreign people get educated here and are great talents and then leave with that talent mm-hmm. and go back to the country. And and very often we've seen this, you know, out of World War II, out of different periods of time where United States was considered the place to go and live if you were highly talented and could immigrate over there. And then that also helps the country. Definitely. So it's very interesting. We'll see how this all plays out. Um, you know, generally speaking, countries that become more and more totalitarian, um, you know, it's not enamored by the people who are living there. No, definitely not. Well, you touched on how China is kind of the backbone of the manufacturing world and how these zero COVID lockdowns um, really hurt the supply chain and how that could affect the U.S. and how we could really affect them if we were to go into recession. Um, love to take some time to talk about the next Fed meeting in December um, and how they might be looking at raising rates. Are they going to slow down from three quarters of a point? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so it was interesting. The last Fed meeting <clears throat> was um, uh, pretty instructive as to how they're going to deal with this. So as people probably remember, um, the Fed started out very slow, kind of behind the curve with a quarter point hike, then it went to half point. Then it's been three quarters of a point every single time. And I think we've kind of gotten used to these three quarter point hikes. And and really, it's odd that we've gotten used to them because they're pretty unusual. I mean, this is literally the fastest movement in rate hikes in all of Fed history in the period of time that they've done it. Alan Greenspan was famous for doing everything at a quarter point. So he might raise rates if he thought they needed to be raised a lot by a quarter point. He might do it for two years running Mm -hmm. on every single meeting. And so here we went really, really fast. Now, the concern, so so we so let's take back maybe three, four months ago. So if you're in the summer, he wasn't ra- he was first raising the rates three quarters of a point, and everybody was like, Oh my god, this guy's gotta get moving. You know, we're never gonna get inflation solved. He's gotta move him up higher. He should even do a one point. And a lot of, a lot of backseat drivers. Oh, well, for sure. And then all of a sudden we got to a couple months ago and people are like, oh my God, what is he doing? He keeps raising <laughs> three quarters. He's he's gonna put us totally into a recession. Now that we've gotten those two extremes out of the way, we now have the Fed starting to moderate in tone. And that's the first step. I mean, they're just really trying to telegraph what's going on. If you went back one month ago, and I don't think you have to go back any further than that, one month ago, if you listened to all the Fed governors that are on the board, 
they basically all sung the same song, basically saying rates are going to have to go up a lot higher than this. We're going to have to keep doing this. We probably need to be at 5% to 5.5% to 5.75% eventually. Um, so it's, it's a ways off. Now suddenly it's a month later and everyone is now singing from a new songbook. So now every Fed governor is basically saying, yeah, I mean, they probably still have to go up some, but there's probably a point here where we can moderate the, the magnitude of change. And so Powell in his, in his testimony recently basically said the same thing. But what's interesting is if you listen to the Fed and you listen to his prepared remarks, he sounds pretty hawkish. Mm -hmm. So he really does sound like, okay, our job is not done. We need to raise them more. It's not as high as it needs to be. We're going to continue to do this. We're going to stay steadfast till we get the job done. But if you get him into the question-answer period – Suddenly, his answers are a lot more dovish than his statement was. And so now what we found, and I don't know if he intended to do this or not because the prepared remarks wouldn't suggest that. Now, suddenly, what you're hearing is, yeah, there's a point where we'll not have to do so much. And mm -hmm. so maybe that's coming up. And so and, – and then the Fed governors each speaking are like, yeah, you know, we don't have to do three quarters every time. I mean there's a point to back off on that. Yeah, we've gotten some really good uh, sound bites from a bunch of the the four uh, the federal uh, governors. We had someone like Christopher Waller, who's typically more on the hawkish side. Um, he said he's more comfortable with smaller rate increases going forward after recent data showed the pace the pace of price increases was slowing. Um, we've had a number of other comments that were very promising for slower ra uh, rate increases. We had someone like Lisa Cook saying. Given the tightening already in the pipeline, I'm mindful that monetary policy works with a long leg. As the Fed moves toward an uncertain stopping point for its rate rises, it would be prudent to move into smaller steps. So we have a lot of people, and I have a bunch of other quotes here, but it seems like everyone is definitely moving toward that smaller rate hike. Right. And so in the December meeting, I think the odds-on favorite is that it will not be a three-quarter point hike and that it'll be half a point. And then the question will be, do you get to January's meeting and do you get a quarter point move? And so, you know, even if we do quarter point in January and then the next meeting, maybe they do a quarter point, none of that really matters. The fact of the matter is once, once you have the policy where you've gone up pretty dramatically and now you're doing a smaller increase as you go forward, what it ends up doing is telegraphing that the Fed sees enough movement that with them second-guessing how the rate hikes that are in the system are going to come to bear, it's suggesting that they believe they're pretty close to the end of tightening. Now, as an investor, people are, are going to ask the question, why do I care? And the answer is a lot of markets have turbulence because nobody knows where the end is. 
And so the bond market is one of those. And so the bond market already, now that it knows it's not going to be a series of three-quarter point hikes for the from now to the end of time, has actually backed off its highs. So so you don't have a 10-year bond, you know, approaching the 4% range or or the 3.75. It's all of a sudden easing up a bit. And that's that's allowing the markets to function a little bit more normal. Now, what do people pay more attention to? Most people aren't paying attention to the movements of the bond market, but they are looking at the movement of the stock market. And so it's not surprising that after the Fed's announcement that you now saw the stock markets responding in a favorable way. And so the S&P 500, which is the one that that we always suggest people pay more attention to, Dow Jones Industrial Average is only 30 companies, so you don't can't get too excited about what mm-hmm. 30 companies are doing. But 500 companies is pretty important. And when you look at that, you end up seeing that that we are moving up toward the higher side of the range that we've always talked about. So so when we've been talking, we've always said that the S&P 500 has a range and that low end of the range was right around 35 and 3600. And we had hit that um, earlier. And now we have moved ourselves um, currently to right around 4100. And we've talked for some time that the high-low range of this market is around 3,600 to 4,300. So, you know, it doesn't mean we're going all the way back to 4,300 right now, but it means that if we did, that wouldn't be a giant surprise. We were there not that long ago. And so we're going to live within this trading range. The good news in all of this is that even though this doesn't mean this is 100% over, it does mean that we know the end is near. In other words, you, you can start pulling out the binoculars to look for for you know where it's clear sailing because mm-hmm. it's out there and it's not that far out there. And remember, and it's always worth bringing this up and pointing it out again, remember that the stock market is a forward-looking indicator. So even though we will still talk about whether we have a recession in 2023, which again, it is not a foregone conclusion that we have one. Is it likely? It's probably likely, um, but it's likely to be mild. Mm -hmm. But it's not even a foregone conclusion because right now with the new data that's come out, we see some easing in inflation and we have good GDP. So these two things aren't aren't happening where, where you would expect some deep recession. But even if you got a recession by June, because a lot of people are talking about second quarter recession, even if you got it by June, that does suggest that the market already factored that in and is already moving up out of it. And so remember, whenever we talk about recessions, by the time that the board uh, lists when was the start of the recession and when was the end of the recession, we're typically way higher. And we look backwards and go, oh, it was that back there? That was it? <laughs> oh, okay, that was it. Yeah. And, and so it's worth keeping that in mind. So I, I point that out because it doesn't feel logical that that's how it works. And that's why I point it out because people would say, if we're going to have a recession by June, maybe we should get out. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, no, no. So, so the low point that we had the other month was the reflection of, we think we, we would have a recession in June. The low point's already in. 
it's already gone. <laughs> We're That's already right, much yeah. higher than that low point. So, so people have to just keep in mind. It's a little bit of a mind bend to mm -hmm. to think the way the market thinks, but that is the way the market thinks. It's looking out six months or longer yeah. in advance. And so we should see some uh, sustained growth. The other, the other reason why that's important, you know, the whole idea of the Fed, you know, kind of, um, you know, getting to stasis isn't because interest rates are going to go down anytime soon. Now, according to the Fed, they say they believe that they're going to leave the interest rates for all of 2023. And, and I say, that's a good plan. At that terminal rate? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's a good plan. Um, but- but, you know, they will react to whatever happens. I mean, it, it reminds me of Muhammad Ali, where his comment was, um, he said, everybody's got a plan until they've been punched in the face. <laughs> you know, then you adapt. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, and so that may be their forward-looking thoughts of what they're going to do. But the fact of the matter is they've got to respond. And to, they're data-driven as well. So they'll be exactly. getting yeah, new data. And you want them to be data-driven. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, so the Fed, you know, they're just trying to telegraph how they see things going. Now, what, why does the market care about that? Well, the market cares about that because if you are a company and you are expanding and you are growing and you're trying to make decisions uh, to the tune of hundreds of millions or billions of dollars – you want to have at least a little bit of clarity. You don't, it, has, it doesn't have to be crystal clear. You want a little bit of clarity of how bad will the interest rates end up getting? Mm -hmm. How high is my financing going to be? And if I'm going to put up, let's say it's a fabrication plant for, for $12 billion and I'm going to be issuing bonds – to be able to finance this, uh, approximately what am I likely to to have to pay my bondholders? Yeah, to get people to buy at, them. Yeah, at this point. And so that that becomes part of it. And once there's clarity, even if you give somebody bad news and say we're going all the way up to 5% on the federal funds rate and then we're staying there, they can go, okay, now I can do some math calculations because mm -hmm. now I know the number. I know it's not six, seven, eight. And that becomes important. Less unknown. Yep. And that is the first step in markets stopping, stabilizing, assessing, and then moving forward. Excellent. Well, that's all we have time for today. As always, we thank you for joining us and hope you found it interesting and helpful and look forward to you and your friends joining us next month on Wealth Vision 2020. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know. And if there are other subjects you'd like to hear about, let us know that as well. Wealth Vision 2020 is a production of Alliance Wealth Management Milwaukee, an independent registered investment advisor. Visit us at awmmil.com. The information contained in this podcast does not purport to be a complete description of the securities, markets, or developments referred to in this material. The information has been obtained from sources considered to be reliable, but we do not guarantee that the foregoing material is accurate or complete. Any opinions expressed are as of this date subject to change and are those of the speakers and not necessarily those of Raymond James. Past performance does not guarantee future results. No statement within this podcast should be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell a security or to provide investment advice. Raymond James does not provide tax or legal services. Please discuss these matters with the appropriate professional. There is no assurance that any of the trends mentioned will continue or that any of the forecasts mentioned will occur. All investing involves risk, including the possible loss of capital.
The S&P 500 is an unmanaged index of 500 widely held stocks, while the Dow Jones Industrial Average is an unmanaged index of 30 large company stocks. It is not possible to invest directly in an index.